It's that time again. Wait a minute. No, it's not that time again. I just did this recording. Oh, well, this is a special episode. Oh, a spe- Ah. On this special games workshop episode of Rolling Dice and Taking Names, Marty, along with Joel Eddy from Drive Through Games, and our son Adam talk about the latest version of Warhammer 40K, Warcry campaigns, and the new Age of Sigmar RPG. Meanwhile, Tony is busy putting together his 1,000-piece puzzle, and he will be back on the next regularly scheduled episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special episode of Rolling Dice and Taking Names. This is episode 204, Sledgehammer. My name is Marty, and Tony is not here. No, that's not what makes this special. What makes this special is because it's an off-week episode, and it's very focused on a particular theme. In this episode, we're going to be looking at Games Workshop games. Three in particular are going to be looking at the brand new 9th edition of Warhammer 40k. We're going to be talking about campaign play in Warcry and giving a preview of the upcoming RPG Age of Sigmar Soulbound. Over the years as a board gamer, I've always liked to branch out and try different things. And that's what I've done when I've stepped my toe into the miniature ocean or the RPG ocean. And I always like to present these sort of episodes coming from the perspective of, as a board gamer, is this something that I want to get into? And to hopefully remove some of the barriers that you may be thinking that exist to get into miniature gaming or RPG. So I've got some very special guests that's going to be coming on the show in our first segment. I got Joel Eddy from Drive Through Review coming on to talk about 40K. And then in the second segment on Warcry, I have my son, Adam, coming in to talk about the campaign mechanics of Warcry. And then both of them will join me in the final segment to talk about the brand new Age of Sigmar RPG. And that's why this episode is called Sledgehammer. Well, actually, I tried to look for a song with the word Warhammer in it, and I, I couldn't find one. So it's the only song I could think of that had the word hammer. And it's also the reason why... Tony usually picks the names of the episodes because they they make a lot more sense. And um, yeah, but enough about that. Let's go ahead and get this started. Bring in Joel and let's talk about Warhammer 40k 9th edition. As I teased, one of the main goals of this episode is to talk about the brand new edition of Warhammer 40k 9th edition. And one of my good buddies, I come to all the time with any question I have when it comes to Wargamer. And that is Joel Eddy from Drive Through Games. So, Joel, thanks for coming on, man. Happy to be on, Marty. I think this is the first time I've been on your podcast, and I'm not doing a Space Marine voice. But that is absolutely <laughs> correct because uh, you are always on our Squirrelier Awards. And if people uh, notice, I always give Joel the miniatures games because uh, Joel, you're kind of passionate when it comes to miniature games, uh, also board games too. But you also have this love for miniatures too. Yeah, absolutely. I've I wasn't always like that. It was probably four or five years ago that I really started getting into it and then just got kind of bit in the same way that I got bit by the board game stuff, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> and so uh, the question is, is I know that Games Workshop is probably the biggest miniatures game company right now. And I assume yeah. that you probably have a lot of experience in a lot of their different brands, Age of Sigmar, maybe Warhammer Fantasy, 40K. Yeah, I, I would say my cup of tea is Age of Sigmar, but I've played just about everything from them. I, I like a lot of their board games as well. Uh, I really do like, I'd say my natural inclination though, even though Age of Sigmar is my favorite, my natural inclination is towards 
like the skirmish style games, like a Kill Team, a War Cry, Frostgrave, which is not a Games Workshop game. It's another game. But uh, I like those, usually like those small model counts with like five, ten models, you know, and maybe there's a little bit of a narrative where you, you're telling a story. It's kind of like a light role-playing game. Uh, but I do still enjoy Age of Sigmar and 40K, which you're here to talk about now. I still do enjoy those big battles. Well, and what's the nice thing about kind of teasing it a little bit of the ninth edition is they have now done different scales of battles that you have. They do support a smaller number of units now. And that's the, the first thing that kind of caught my eye in this version. It's like, wow, you know, it used to be like there's going to be a tons of models on the table. And right. now they have what they call, is it is it combat? Combat patrol. Combat patrol is on like 500 points, which is a lot fewer models on the table. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they've always kind of had like you could play at 500 points. You can always just kind of agree to play at a lesser point or greater point value if you want. But there's real kind of like official support now for that 500 point combat patrol level. There is, you know, uh, specific scenarios and uh, uh, table design. So you play on a certain table size and a certain amount of terrain. And even there at the back of the ninth edition rule book, there's about 50 pages of narrative play that is geared off uh, to sort of at least start out at combat patrol. And so there's there's definitely like a good leaning into from Games Workshop about this, because even in Age of Sigmar, they have something called a meeting engagement, which they started last year. And I think that they've even beefed out more. And so I think they're kind of doing a similar thing now in ninth edition where you've got kind of a small footprint and a little bit more model count than you'd see in a kill team. So it's kind of like kill team is basically like you buy one box, you know, you spend 40, 50, 60 bucks, whatever the box cost is. And you get anywhere from like 10 to 20 models, kind of depending on the faction. And then that's all you need. And so Combat Patrol is kind of like, okay, you get two of those boxes and then you throw in a vehicle or a special character or something like that. So it's kind of that gradual next step as well. So you can get on the spending train, <laughs> you know, as you sort of like, oh, I, really, I like Kill Team. That's, you know, that's not too scary. So I can just get a box and get in and have fun. And like, oh, what if I get another box? And then what if I get another box? And then all of a sudden you're playing a 2,000 point game. Yeah, it's it, that onboard ramp is definitely more official, I guess you can say. And uh, which edition did you get into? Did you start playing uh, 40K? I started picking up stuff in 7th because I got really interested in it. Because I, like I said, a few years ago, I started getting into it. But right as I was starting to get into it, they basically announced 8th edition. I mean, they didn't announce it. There was a lot of rumors, but you knew it was coming. So I just kind of pumped the brakes on that and continued to paint my Death Watch army, which is kind of the main army I have. And then 8th edition came out. Then I really kind of jumped in there and started playing that. And for most of the audience that are listening, I know that probably most of you play board games and maybe are just kind of maybe looking at possibly dabbling into miniature games. That's kind of the conversation that we want to have, you know. Right. Every time a new edition comes out, people ask, you know, should I jump in now? I mean, you had this eighth edition. Is all that stuff dead? And now there's this whole new thing that we need to learn and everything. But it seems like from what I've looked at, and you've looked at too, Joel. And actually, Joel has an amazing video, a review that he just released on his YouTube channel where he does a battle report and talks about the, the models in the game and everything. And I'll have a link to it in our show notes. You can go check it out. But the jump from 8th to ninth edition isn't a big change in the rule set. It's more of kind of a tweaking and of adjustments, making some changes that people playing the 8th really wanted. Right. 
Yeah. So if you are somebody that has like a codex for an army or something uh, from eighth, it, that's going to be valid and legal all the way into ninth. That codex may get an update in a year or something, but for now, you can use it. You can jump in with anything that you might have might have had. If you've already played eighth, this is going to be really a kind of a small step, you know, in terms of the difference in gameplay. There are significant differences, but you know, unless you kind of know the game, you're not really going to see that much difference in the rules. Um, so, but if you were just coming in fresh, like you were saying earlier, to me, this is a better onboard than eighth was because just purely on the presentation of the rules in the main rule book. I think, I don't know. I mean, this is sort of just a guess, but it seems like they've kind of taken notes from some of the stuff I've seen in board game rule books, uh, whether accidentally or on purpose. Uh, Cause a lot of the sections have that kind of thing you see in a lot of, I think it's Aaliyah games um, where you have kind of the little blurb on the side that says, Oh, in this phase you do this and this. And then on the right, like in the main text, you have like a big paragraph or a couple of paragraphs explaining it. So if you want to flip through and find a reference, it's really easy to kind of just see these nice sort of boxed out colored in blurbs and say, oh, yeah, that's right. This These types of guns do that in a one sentence. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to find. And then if you want to kind of get into the minutia or if there's some kind of corner case, which can happen with miniature games, um, then you can kind of read through that paragraph quickly. But most of the time you won't have your head stuck firmly in the rule book for hours while you're playing. You can just flip to a page, check out what's going on and do that. So for that reason alone, just the presentation of the rules, it's much easier for like a new player to get into than I think it has been. And, and that's a great uh, segue to the actual uh, rule set itself. If, if you've never played before, I know that if you went into a games workshop store and something and looked at it, it's like, well, I'm kind of interested in looking at this and you pick up this rule book. This rule book has 370 pages in it. And I know that that will just blow people's minds because when you pick up a, a rule book for a board game, it's, you know, 15, 20 pages. <laughs> Hopefully that's it. So when you see this beast, it may be so intimidating that you pick up and put it down. If you look through the rule book and you, you kind of realize that only maybe 50, 60 pages of this has anything to do with the rules. Right. And the rest of it is fluff and kind of explaining the universe and explaining how to read the data sheets and stuff. But the actual rules to play the game aren't that long and aren't that complicated. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I think if you took actual rules, it's it's, a, it's almost a 400-page book, I think. And I've got it here on the side, but it's about 150 pages of rules. But it's not like you have to read all of those. Like I said, there's 50 pages of narrative rules, which you completely ignore. And then there's probably another 50 pages of matched play rules. And so that's if that's for like tournaments. If you want to do really fine grain down to the crossing your T's and dotting your I's detail, that's that part. So you can leave that part out of it. Again, with the whole onboarding thing, it gives you this real kind of step by step thing where here's the basic rules of how to play the game. And like if you got that Indominus box set, you've already got your army built up. So you don't have to struggle with, you know, which units to choose and do I need this kind of unit and this kind of unit is a leader and this one's a tank and this one's a troop and this one's an elite. You don't really have to bother too much with that if you get the box set. And then it just, this is the phases of the turns and then this is the introductory scenario and then you just play that and then you're away you go. And then if you want to get into more details like special abilities of the armies and all this kind of stuff, you can kind of slowly add those bite-sized chunks on top of that core. 
And they do a really good job of that, uh, especially recently. I'd say within the, I think I got in at the right time because when I got in, Age of Sigmar was uh, kind of had blown up everything with fantasy, and they were kind of rebuilding it. And there wasn't really a lot there in terms of complexity, you know, out the gate. The intro to it was very, very simple. And I think the one thing that they've kind of learned from the last few years is to really layer things and not make it like spaghetti layers, but just building block layers where you can start at the beginning and then slowly kind of work your way in. One thing I like about the uh, the rule set for 40K is if you're a board gamer, you can kind of follow along with the rules step by step because everything's done in phases. When you play a game, it's over a set of rounds. And each round, each side's going to, to play through different phases. And there's seven, seven different phases. And they do a good job in the rule book of breaking up each phase. So if you're learning for the first time, you literally pick up the rule book and number one, the command phase. And it'll kind of walk you through the command phase. Movement phase. You can slowly walk through the movement phase. You can just go through each one till you've cycled all the way through it. And then you, you kind of rinse and repeat till you determine a winner. So if you're a board gamer... That concept is very easy to follow because there are so many games out there right now that's broken down into phases. And when it's broken down like that, it, it doesn't, it's not as confusing and as and intimidating as just walking up somebody and seeing them moving stuff all over the table and getting out measuring tapes and chunking dice like, wait a minute, what's going on? When you realize that each thing is a round and each round is broken up into small seven steps, it's a little bit more digestible. Yeah, a hundred percent to that. Uh, like I said, the presentation is great. And then another th thought occurred to me while you were talking there is a lot of times in olden days, let's call it the structure of the missions, I don't think was so hot. But one thing that they've done here with the new 40k is they have leaned heavily on the community and the player base and specifically the, uh, the tournament scene in terms of like how to uh, present a mission. Because if you think about it with a miniature game, what's usually the objective is to go and kill all the other models so you wipe mm -hmm. them off of the table. Well, they have moved to very hard in the other, in this other direction of an objective-based uh, win condition. So each of the scenarios will have like objective points on the board. So even if you get wiped out, theoretically, if you've controlled objectives for long enough and you've accrued enough victory points over the round then you can still win the game. And then they've augmented that with like secondary objectives. So you can give yourself little goals and things. So if you think about it from a board gamer perspective, you have like these different sort of paths to victory. So you've got these objectives. Sometimes you've got to like, you know, move something from here to there, or maybe you're trying to target their leader or their specific types of characters or something like that. So there's a lot of like things that you can sort of play with. They get kind of getting back to that toolbox idea of layering on top of all of that. And it keeps the game interesting. That was one of my, I shouldn't even say this, this is one of the issues with the 8th edition and 7th and 8th edition, even from the community at large, was they thought the game was good, you know, and the abilities and stuff were neat, and all the special powers and uh, ways that you can sort of configure your army. But then when you came down to sit down and play a game, like, what is my purpose in life here? You know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, oh, I'm just, we're just going to shoot and whoever gets all the shooting off first is the winner, you know? So you had these kind of things where the game would get so close and then kind of fall on its face a little bit. And then it was really the community that kind of came back and said, well, what if we did this? What if we made this special building be an objective or this kind of thing? Or you had like a hidden objective in this case, and you did that. And so that adds so much dimension to the game 
because you've got like narrative implications to that. So like, why are we fighting here? Oh, these guys have the secret plans or whatever, or this is that, or you're here to like get revenge for that. And then it adds just a better dynamic in terms of the gameplay where you just kind of, it kind of grounds you in, in some kind of real world sort of idea instead of just, Oh, I'm here to wipe you out because my team hates your team and we need to wipe each other out. And so just, mm-hmm. That just adds a lot more depth when you can kind of move away from just that. Oh, 100% agree. That was actually one of the issues I had when I was playing War Machine. That was kind of the first miniatures game that I played was that a lot of that was just, you know, kill the Warcaster and the kind of the game's over. Now, mm-hmm. there are some other things, too. They did some objective-based stuff. But the another the winning stipulation that always existed in every game is you kill the Warcaster, you win. So a lot of people built their armies. It's like, I don't really care what the objectives is. My goal is I'm taking out your your Warcaster. Forget right. the scenario that we're playing. So I love that Games Workshop, and, and not only in 40K, but uh, Age of Sigmar too, does present these more of a story element where you feel like we're here for a purpose, like you said. My goal is to try to capture that building or hold on to this point or something like that, which just makes the whole time more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And like I was saying earlier, they have that 50 pages of narrative, which I frankly haven't sunk my teeth in yet. I've just kind of skimmed through it, but it looks like they're kind of bringing some of those ideas from a Necromunda or even a little bit from Warcry, uh, Frostgrave, that kind of campaign idea where you grow your force. It has its own system of special abilities and power. So your army will have its kind of natural abilities and things that it uses. But then it gives you another layer on top of that to kind of level up characters and things like that. So that's the one thing that has really made me fall in love with Age of Sigmar, which I think they're doing more of in 40K, is you have, again, that core. And then it's just a, it's a very simple, basic core. But then on top of that, you can plug and play lots of different things. So if you're really a competitively oriented gamer versus a narrative RPG style gamer, you can kind of make the system do what you want it to do. And what's really cool too is over the years, uh, as you and I as, as board gamers, is more and more companies are coming out with miniature-based games. And I mm-hmm. think if you like those style of games, I mean, look at all the games from Simon, uh, like you know Arcadia Quest and stuff where there's the concept of we have this board and we have miniatures on it. The miniatures have a speed that they can move on their turn, and then they can do some sort of attack, and we usually resolve the attack with dice. I mean, so many board games are like such a small subset of like a full miniatures game Hmm. that if people enjoy that style of board game, it's such a small, teeny step to 40K or Age of Sigmar, even though it may look like it's a huge step, but it's not, especially now with 9th edition where they've come out with these supporting smaller model counts that it doesn't take a huge investment or time investment to even play a game. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing. And so far with 9th edition, I've played two combat patrol games and then I played kind of the next level uh, incursion, which is what you'd see on that video. The combat patrol games are just as satisfying as kind of the 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 real game so that's the thing is you you are playing a real 40k game but you don't need to invest the time and the money and the effort to paint up and build all the models like you do to get into the incursion i forget what the 2000 point level is called think combat strike or something so you don't have to do that and the, the nice thing about that smaller level again they have the narrative support for it but also you can more gradually, if you have like you and a friend or a couple of friends, if you want to kind of play around at that level, you can get into it. But then you're like, you know what? I'm going to buy this tank or something. 
and then you can swap it in and then just, you know, still be playing. You don't have to, that's kind of, that's really kind of been the problem with the large scale games. And, mm-hmm. you, and that's, that's just the problem with that, with all of them, frankly, is like, well, I've got to get in and I've got to play my 2000 point game. Well, forget about the dollar amount cost, the time investment just to build up these models, maybe not even paint them, but if you want to paint them, paint them to do all that just to see, oh, I wonder if this will be fun. <laughs> you know, after those, all those hours, that's got to be so disheartening to just, you know, you spend hours and hours and hours and then you play and you're like, oh, I don't really like this faction <laughs> or, th- or this game. And so right. with the combat patrol, you can kind of jump in, you know, pretty quick. And the thing with the Indominus box, I didn't think about this before, was it kind of gives you enough to, it gives you enough for the incursion level, which is like the thousand point on each side. But then the combat patrol level, it gives you enough room to tinker with. Mm-hmm. So you can say, oh, I'm going to run my Necron Warriors and this Scorpion Lord, whatever he's called. And then next time, you know what, I'm going to try to swap this and out. So it gives you some room to kind of play around and have some fun with the different builds right out of the box. How long did it take your your combat patrol games? Uh, for somebody's like, okay, I'm interested in playing, but how long do those games take? I mean, because I know that they can go to conventions or game stores and see a game take two hours. And it's like, I don't have time for that. What, you know, I need something shorter. Yeah, these these were about, well, the first one was about probably about an hour and a half, but the second one was about an hour. Okay. But the first one, I'm kind of like, you know, getting used to the rules and stuff. And like, oh, because in my head, I have like a lot of eighth edition rules. And I'm like, no, no, I know that changed. So let me go look at the morale phase or whatever's different. So there's a little bit of flipping around. It was about an hour and a half, but an hour, you could definitely get it done in an hour. Like once you get the hang of it, because it's just, you don't have that many models on the board, you know? So, um, and I think when I did the incursion one, that probably took me about three hours, but... What, that was the one I did for the video. So I was kind of juggling cameras and like trying to remember the abilities of both sides and all that kind of fun stuff. So right. I'm like, how much? I just looked at this movement. How much movement does it have? Because I've got like 15 different units for the movement in my brain. I'm like, was he moving eight or six? And so I'd have to like, you know, stop talking on the camera and go back and look. Much of this segment I wanted to focus on was about removing roadblocks from those who enjoy board games to moving towards miniature games. And we talked about, you know, now's a good time because it's not like you're coming in late in the game. It's a brand new edition mm-hmm. out now. It's going to be supported for a few years. The models that are out there, you can use those right now. The rule book is, is easier to follow. The rules are more straightforward to support shorter games. But unfortunately, Joel, there's one roadblock that I hear from people that we just can't remove. And that's just part of this game is... You're going to have to cut pieces off sprues. You're going to have to glue them together and put them on a base and potentially paint them. And that's one thing a lot of people just don't want to overcome. And I understand that. But yes, if you want to get into this game, that's just something you'll have to do. Yeah, to me, now these models in this box are what they call push to fit. So they're not real fiddly and whatnot to put together because they have these like little pegs and whatnot. I will say a word of advice on that is if you did pick up this box or really any of the other sort of push-to-fit miniatures from Games Workshop, I like to clip off a little bit of an end on the peg. So you have like, let's say, two body segments, and one side will have holes in the body, and the other one will have pegs. So I always like to clip off a little bit of the peg, because as great as most of the push-to-fit miniatures are, I think it's got to do something with shipping or temperature. Like sometimes it doesn't really go in quite all the way. So if you clip it off just a little bit, it's a very simple thing. I mean, just clip it off and you'll be fine once you do that. But yeah, you're you're right. Um, (laughs) That is the hurdle. Uh, To (laughs) to me, to me, it's 
that's just it, that's just going to be an individual thing. If if that just is your deal breaker, then that's that's just going to be a deal breaker, right? But personally, for me, like these miniatures, they're second to none among everything that I have. Although Simon or Come On Ink does give them a run for their money here and there, but yeah, I would say hands down though, like just about every miniature I have from them is looks really good, especially the you know the more recent ones, especially the ones in this box set. But yeah, it's to me it's worth it. Think of it like punching uh, cardboard. <laughs> it takes a little longer than that. <laughs> it does. But the thing is, though, I can punch a game and probably be ready to play in maybe twenty minutes. Not right. not really. So if you're just getting the Indominus box and it's like, all right, let's play. You no, know, you're gonna have to spend a, a few hours getting stuff together, and that's that's just part of. It. But that's one of the things that many people love about the miniature hobby is that it's two separate hobbies, right? It's the yeah. game itself, which people love. But then it's also that when I'm by myself, I'm just sitting in a room or a desk with some music playing and just kind of painting. Mm-hmm. That part's therapeutic. So there, there's two parts to this hobby. And I've always tell people that there's the artistic part and there's the strategic part. Yeah. And to me, they kind of inform each other in a way. And, that, that, and that's something that I didn't really experience early on but something i've kind of like learned or just it's sort of cultivated itself organically is when you take the time to sit down and and put something together and paint it and decide the colors and all that kind of stuff in the back of my head i'm always kind of thinking a little bit about the story of like why is it this color why is this person posed this way and it sounds kind of silly to hear myself say this like from five years ago i would not that would be silly (laughs) but um (laughs) But it really is a thing because you kind of construct uh, a world in a way. I guess it kind of gets back to some a little bit about like when you were a kid and stuff and you'd have G.I. Joe's or whatnot in your, your bedroom or whatever it is or Legos. And it's kind of like you're kind of doing a little bit of world building when you do something like that. And so then when you go back to the game, you're able to you have that more you have, you're more invested in it because you've put some time into sort of building the characters out in the world. And then when you go back to doing the painting and whatnot, it's like I set aside some time to kind of still live and breathe in that world. Even though maybe I can't get a game in right now, I can still kind of escape back to that same thing, even though I'm not actually playing it. So yeah, there, there is that you, you will have to get over. And so if you, if you've gotten to this point and it's like, you know what? All right. So, so the rules aren't too intimidating. Now is a decent time to maybe get into it. You know what? Maybe putting together miniatures and stuff sounds kind of fun. Or at least maybe I can get them. And, you know, a lot of people pay to have their stuff painted. There's a lot of professional people out there who will paint your miniatures for you. If you want to ship them off and have that done, hmm. uh, that's possible for you too. Or or buy them. They're just like, here, you put these together. All those services are there. It just costs you money. So let's say you've gotten to this point and it's like, all right, so... What what does it take to get, jump in, Marty? I mean, and Joel, you, you had this Indominus box and there's these two factions, but I, I guess I could try those. But what if those don't interest me? Where do I where do I go from here? To what, what do we need, Joel? A, yeah. a rule book to start with yeah. and then I guess a faction to jump into. But if you don't know, I guess maybe the community. You find a store yeah. or something or find a faction that sounds interesting to you and guarantee you somebody will sit down and show you about that faction, tell you how to play before you put a dollar into it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, for me, I like for 40K, I like Death Watch because it's, if you've watched Game of Thrones, it's kind of like the Night's Watch where they take and sort of conscript space marines from other chapters. And then they're, they're sort of like a, an elite force or, well, space marines are an elite force anyway, but they're like the elite of the elite. 
and they have special missions that they go on. And I really like how they look and everything. But right. really, that's all it's it's really got to be, I think, is if something like looks cool, I, that's the advice I often see given online is like people ask, hey, hey I want to get into this. What's the best faction to get into? And everybody usually I'll say eight, nine, tens, eight or nine times out of ten will say, which one looks the coolest to you? Get that one. Or maybe read up like a Wikipedia article about which faction you're like, OK, I really like the town because they look like Robotech. And I really like the Tyranids because they kind of remind me of Aliens or I really like the Death Watch. And then go read up on it. You can find that kind of the lore and stuff if that if that's important to you. Or maybe you just like the models and things. And so the best thing to do, though, would be once you kind of decide on that or, like you say, go to the local shop and talk to folks about it. And I'm sure you find somebody to talk your ear off about all this stuff is uh, you can get usually they have start collecting boxes. And so you get like start collecting Death Watch or start collecting Tyranids. And you get that and you get the codex book and then, of course, the rule book for ninth edition. And then that's basically what you need. Because when you get the Indominus box, it gives you the rule book, of course, and then the two factions of models, which are way more than you get in a start collecting box. (laughs) But And then they have like a little codex, mini codex inside the box for them. So you got all their abilities and data sheets and stuff. Another thing, too, is uh, maybe not only the way they look, but maybe there's a certain play style you like. It's like, well, I'm the type of person who likes to do stealthy. All right. Well, then you might want to consider this. Oh, no, I just want to get right in your face and start just beating the mess out of you with my fist and, and right. melee weapons. Well, you might want to try this. No, I'd rather be like the shooty guys. OK, then you might want to try this. So even your play style can determine what faction you may enjoy. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, So I would say my answer to that would be so if you like shooting stuff, then I would play the towel, which are like the Robotech looking guys. If you like to get up and bite things and punch things, <laughs> you probably would play Tyranids or Orcs. Now, Orcs, I mean, obviously all the factions, well, pretty much all the factions have shooting and some have melee and stuff. So some of the factions are a little bit more versatile. You know, Space Marines, like, for example, you can equip them with more long-range guns or you can equip them with shields and power swords and, you know, big old power hammers and thunder hammers, excuse me, and then things like that. You can get like Imperial Knights where you get like three giant, I don't know what to compare. They're like the size of small buildings that walk around, you know, and you only need the three for your army. And they, I think they cost like 150 bucks a piece. But, you know, they're really huge and detailed models. Or you can even play like demons and stuff like that if you want to play some kind of magically oriented creatures that come out of the warp, you know, that's what those are. And you've got different kinds of Marines, you know. I think that's probably why this game is probably as popular as it is, because you can take take that core space marine and you have the chaos marines and the sort of Imperium marines and you can paint them all different colors and you can kind of kit those armies out to be kind of what you want it to be. If you want like gross, disgusting, disease infested marines, you can have those, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those things, too, that whatever you get into, um seems like Games Workshop over the years has really, really started upping uh, the content they have for this game. And not only out inside the miniatures games, but there's there, there's so many novels and books oh. based on this universe where you could just dig into it and live this universe. They're now coming out with some sort of uh, production studio, right? I mean, they're start going to releasing animated flicks. I, I think there's a... Uh, there's a 40K cartoon or anime type style that's that's going to be coming out soon. So they're starting to get into providing more content like movies and shows that you can watch and enjoy stuff that happens in 40K universe too. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, there's some people out there that don't even play the game. And I probably, I think they don't even buy models. They just read the books. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, because the lore is for, it's, it's like a, the same level as like Dungeons and Dragons or something with all of the fiction and stuff that they have supporting that. It's just amazing that they have, it's just, it blows my mind every time I think about it. Cause I've read a lot of the Age of Sigmar books and a couple of 40k books. But the one I'm reading, I'm like, this is for a game? Like, you know, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this is just the strangest thing that this game that these guys made, you know, 40 years ago or whatever to push little miniatures around and, you know, simulate tactical sci-fi combat. From there, they have this vast universe of characters with story arcs and, you know, internal conflicts and, you know, moral conundrums and all those kinds of things based off this little miniature plastic game. Uh, it, it always blows my mind. And then, like you said, they're moving into these other realms with their multi, with their media. You know, uh, they grabbed a couple of people that are were just fans and made like amateur uh, videos on on YouTube and stuff like that. And then I think they've also, of course, hired people internally, you know, from the professional world. But they're building this studio, and they're going to release. I don't know how they're going to release this content. Like, is it going to be on Netflix? Is it going to be on YouTube? Is it going to be free? Are you going to be able to buy a DVD? I don't know. Hopefully VHS. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> I would bet money, not a lot of money, but I would bet some money that in probably five years, we would have some kind of, uh, we'll call it, quote unquote, a major motion picture 40K movie that comes out in the theaters or at least shows up on Netflix or something. Yeah. It'd just be better than Warcraft. Am I right? Can I get a high five? No. Joel liked Warcraft, the movie. I think he's, I think he's one of one. Oh. <laughs> I never said it was good. I just said I liked it. <laughs> All right. So here's the thing. Ninth edition releases in stores on July 25th, along with the Indominus box. And you may have heard, but Marty, they sold out of that. Well, let me tell you, they are now doing a print to order, print on demand type uh, thing where you can go out and order the box. Now, it's not going to be here for a while, from what I understand, Joel. It's going to be a few months before it gets here. But if you really want this yeah. box, you can still get it, and it'll eventually show up in your hands in a few months from now. Yeah. So you can order direct from them, and you will get it, I think, in Q4. But I do know uh, I spoke to the fellow that runs the shop here locally, and they are allowing them to place orders there. So like, if you go – I mean, not everybody's shop is the same, but thankfully we have a really – great owner, I think here locally, and he'll give you kind of the normal discount that he gets. So he gives you like 15, 20% discount, you know, once you get a certain threshold. So your local shops might be able to have that do too. So you can kind of spend a little bit less and you have to wait. But if you waited and tried to buy these different models and stuff as separate packages, you'll be spending a lot more money. But if you don't want to wait, all these models will eventually come out in these packages, right? So if it's like, oh, I really want that one, or it's like, I don't care about Necrons, but I want the the, the Space Marines. They mm -hmm. will eventually come out so you can buy those individually. Yeah. Well, one thing a lot of people do is they will split a box. Mm -hmm. So I don't know who splits the rule book, but the models are easy to split. I'll give you the Space Marines, Marty, and I'll take the Necrons. Right. And a lot of people will do that, and they'll do that two ways. So maybe I'll buy a box, you buy a box. So I'll give you my Space Marines, you give me the Necrons, and I have a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right, so there we go. There's our deep look at uh, ninth edition again, coming from the perspective of like I'm 
a board gamer. I don't know if I want to do this. We've kind of given you all the ins and outs. Like I said, now's a good time if you're interested in a, in a probably the most popular miniature game on the planet right now. It seems like every time I see the sales charts, it's 40K that sells more than anything else. If you want a sci-fi miniature game, this is probably one you want to get into. And now's the time you, you might want to get into it. So Joel, if people want to go uh, check you out, where can they find you, man? Uh, just go search YouTube for drive through review or drive through games. And it's probably the first thing that shows up there. Yep. And again, he's done a huge, nice video on this uh, four, uh, ninth edition and this box. And I'll make sure to put it in the uh, the show notes. And Joel, if they want to find you on Twitter, where can they find you on Twitter? Nowhere. <laughs> oh, so that's why you're probably the most sane person I've talked to in the past two months. Congratulations, <laughs> sir. Yeah. You don't have that wild look in your eye like I see from everybody else. Yeah, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joel, thank you so much for coming on. And actually, we're going to hear from you again in an upcoming segment when we talk about uh, the universe that you do really enjoy, Age of Sigmar. And we're going to talk about the RPG Soulbound. You may know TheBrokenToken.com for coming out with some great organizers for board games. But did you know they have a whole product line for miniature gaming? They have display stages, dungeon accessories, painting accessories for organizing your paints and brushes, sci-fi terrain, and 3D printed fantasy terrain. All this is available from thebrokentoken.com. They're very reasonably priced. You have lots of different types of terrain to choose from, lots of different materials that the terrain is made out of. To find out more, go over to thebrokentoken.com and look at their miniature gaming section. Last July on episode 176, I talked about the game Warcry with my son, Adam. And a year later, he and I are still playing Warcry, which is based on the Age of Sigmar universe. And I wanted to bring Adam back in to kind of say where we've been over the past year and how we're currently playing, which is a really cool narrative concept. So Adam, welcome back. Good to be back. So over the past year, let, let's talk about what we've done. We've uh, we start out with a couple war bands from the um, starter box, but since then we've kind of gone out on our own. It's like, okay, this is the war band I want to build, and and you had an affinity for like ogres and stuff like that. And what's cool is if you have an army in Age of Sigmar, all you got to do is get the stats and everything for the for Warcry, and you can use those same models in Warcry. Yeah, here's the thing: the war bands that come with Warcry, who cares? <laughs> Who cares? I mean, yeah, the, the models are really good. They're really cool. They're really unique. They're fun to paint and everything. But if you play Age of Sigmar, you've got a connection to the models that you've made, the mm -hmm. ones you've painted and the ones you've played with. And you have the ability to use those more cries well. And that's where I think it really shines in taking pretty much any model you have sitting on the table and being able to use it in the game. So let me just ask you, what war bands um, have you uh, made? So I, I have the, the ogre one. That I've been using. Yep. Um, I have an Iron Jaws one that I played early on. And then most recently, I have made a Lumineth Realm Lords Warband with the brand new models that have just come out. Yeah, so you jumped all over the big release box for that. And I think the same day we went out and got the Games Workshop magazine, which is called White Dwarf, which had all the stats for the uh, models for Warcry for the new Lumineth set. Yeah. However, as you were talking about last night, there's a problem because Lumineth is so new. 
that they haven't released all the models yet. So with that <laughs> box that they came out with, it had two models that are included in the Warcry stats. Everything else is going to come out later. Even though I did make a warband with those models, it's kind of hamstrung because a lot of the best models haven't come out yet. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's GW, you know, kind of giving you a reason to go out and buy new models when they come out. But yeah, it's a tease. It's like, look what's coming. And then you'll be, you know, then you'll be looking for it and then Mm -hmm. you'll get it done when it comes out. But before then, uh, let's see, ogres were just supported like over the past six months. Yeah. They just came out with the uh, rules and the work cards for them. Uh, What are they? I don't know what they're called. This, this stat cards that they came out with. Yeah. Just a few months ago, I think it was like last winter. Mm Mm-hmm. I think they came out with those. So I was finally able to use the ogre models that I've had for years in Warcry, which yep. is great. So um, just a quick refresher. Warcry is a skirmish-based game uh, based in the Age of Sigmar universe. It has a little bit uh, different rules. And in the previous segment, you heard Joel and I talk about Warhammer 40K and that there was Kill Team, which was using the 40K models but had a different set of rules. But now with the new edition of 40K... They have something called Combat Patrol, which is only 500 points, which is way fewer models, so more of a skirmish. However, it uses the exact same rules of 40K, where in this instance, Warcry does use a different set of rules than Age of Sigmar. It's quite different. Yeah, it's it's. I, I hesitate to call it simplified. It, it, it's streamlined, I guess I should mm-hmm. say. It's easier to grasp, but in my opinion, it, it's not as deep as full-scale Age of Sigmar 40k, obviously, but it's still far deeper than what you'd expect a few turns into the game. Yeah, and most of the warbands that we have, the number of models are, geez, I think your Lumineth has the most number I've seen, which is like eight, eight, eight nine. nine. Yeah. yeah, different model types, we should say. Yes, yeah. So, but that's, it's. I'm just saying there's not a lot of stuff on the table. No, 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 play. no, no. Oh, oh, you mean like the size of the warband itself? Yes. Yeah, my, my warband for Lumineth is eight models, and it's by far the largest one we yep. field. My ogre one's only four models. And then my uh, Night Haunt, who I've started playing and I really started to love, is um, six models. Yeah. So uh, that's another nice thing, too, is pull these models that have been made off the shelf, create a warband in Warcry, and you can start playing. But what I want to get into is uh, Warcry supported a, a narrative type of game that Adam and I just started recently playing called a campaign. And it sounds exactly like what it is. Uh, each of you going to bring uh, a war band to the table. And uh, in the Warcry books, they have special campaigns made for your faction, which is kind of basically playing you through a story for that faction. Yeah. And I, I'm all about any narrative, anything, whether it's narrative campaigns for this or for kill team and they have narrative uh play for age of sigmar and 40k i love it any kind of extra flavor you can add to a game i think is perfect balance be darned i (laughs) i I want to i want to play a story basically and i i love that they have rules for that and that's exactly what joel said in the last segment that's what he loves about the new 40k edition is it does add some more narrative elements to it said instead of just wipe off the other army off the table now there's some other reasons like, well, there's objectives and there's narrative mm-hmm. behind it. So it's not mm-hmm. you're just pushing models around and trying to get rid of all of them. There's a story behind it. And there's a really good story behind these campaigns. Like I said, every faction has their own. Like, for example, the Night Haunts have the Bells of Lost Valorum. And it has some text at the front kind of explaining what's going on. There's a map that shows you where this is happening. But what's cool is, is when you play a campaign game, 
you don't necessarily have to play with the same people. It just mm-hmm. so happens that you and I are you and I are playing that way. But when you sit down and play with somebody, say, so do you mind if I make this a campaign game? Which just means you're going to add it to the one of the required games that you got to play to get through your campaign. Meanwhile, like in, in our case here, you and I are playing two totally different campaigns. So the story in our minds is a little bit different, but we're both achieving the same sort of goal of playing through a, a campaign and building up your warband. Yeah. It's really kind of ingenious the way they did this. And the way they have it framed is you could undergo a campaign with your warband, go to your local game store and play literally anybody in Warcry and have that factor Mm -hmm. into your campaign. Um, It doesn't matter if the other person is doing a campaign. It doesn't matter if they're doing a different campaign or the same campaign, but you can still progress in that way. The only thing that is different is that there are three battles in the campaign track that are uh, dictated by the story. And that's, I think, really interesting. So you have a lot of freedom with all of these battles to progress the campaign. But at certain points, you have to play a particular uh, scenario, a particular victory condition, a particular map setup in order to progress your campaign further. And uh, so when you first start playing, uh, they have a whole a roster sheet. It almost looks like a, an RPG sheet. Yeah, oh, it looks you, very much like a character sheet for you, an RPG. You fill out uh, your roster sheet. You, you pick a leader. Uh, they encourage you to give them names because they want you to kind of be attached to them. Yeah. Um, name, uh, name your models, guys. <laughs> That's right. Name it. your models. And uh, in your first game, you're really just going to play just a basic standard game. But it's what happens at the end. But, and so you'll play a game. And at the very end, what you're going to do is you're going to go through uh, these steps called the aftermath sequence. And this is where they, things start getting tweaked. So, for example, you're going to earn glory points. And there's different ways to earn glory points over the course of the game. In Warcry, every time you play a game, there's going to be a random victory condition from a deck of cards. Whoever wins that victory condition is going to get like five glory points. If you kill a certain number of, amount of models of the other person's warband, you get some glory points. Just playing a campaign battle, you get a glory point. And then this is a resource that you can use at any time during the uh, future games in order to maybe add an additional 50 or 100 points to your warband the next time you play. Or get some lesser artifacts, which may be like potions or spells, which are one-time uses, which is a really cool idea. Very cool. I love the way they've set that up. You can, and it's to the point where we've had to make some decisions, like after a game, and we're like, well, do we want to spend these points now? Do we want to save them? It, it makes you think about not only that, but what you're doing on the table a little more. Also, I found that when I was playing, I was thinking a lot more about where my models were going and what they were doing because I'm like, I don't, I don't really want, don't want this model to die and have to make an injury roll because he's got a destiny point and that's really useful. I don't want him to die. And I I don't want uh, my opponent to get the glory points from killing my leader. So I got it. So it kind of adds another tactical dimension that just simply wasn't in the game without it. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned uh, destiny levels. This is really cool. This is part of the aftermath also. For every model that survived, you're going to roll a a D6 and see if they get a destiny level. If you hit a 6, you're going to get a favor of the gods. And you're going to track this on your roster sheet. Each one can have up to three destiny levels. And basically, a destiny level just gives you the ability to make a re-roll during a game. Which is very nice to have. It's, it's another way to just to mitigate luck. Oh man, those dice were just not nice to me. So I'm going to spend my destiny level and roll, re-roll. And then you get that back at the end of the game. 
But you mentioned now if a, if a character or model, a character actually, has a destiny level, you may not want them to die because if that character dies, also during the aftermath stage, you're going to roll 2d6. If you roll a 2 or a 3, character's dead. Gone. Out of the game. You have to bring in a, another character. If you roll a 4 or 5, you lost favor, which means you, if you had a destiny point, you had to get rid of it. Or if you had a six or higher, then nothing happens whatsoever. You're safe. Yeah, and th- that's that's very obviously in the early stages of the campaign. Doesn't matter all that much. <laughs> oh, the 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 grunt died. Oh no, he has to be replaced by a model that looks just like him. But as the campaign wears on, and you have things like destiny levels and artifacts building up, and there eventually people will start getting special abilities. That starts to matter a lot mm-hmm. more, and it makes you think a lot more about how you use your units. Like, am I going to throw my leader directly into combat at the first turn of the game? Probably not because he's got a lot of stuff that I want to hang on to and a lot of abilities I don't want him to lose. And like the um, lesser artifacts that we talked about, we could spend glory points to get potions or something. When you get those, you must assign them to a character. And once again, you know, if, if they, if you roll bad, if they're killed or whatever, then that, that's just gone. They don't get to trade them from one to another. That, that, that's pretty much it. And so you mentioned there are three special points uh, as you play through a campaign, and those are called convergences. And this is really interesting. And you and I are getting ready to pass through our first convergence. And when you play against somebody else, you say, look, we're going to play my convergence or your convergence because we're both at the same level. And let's just say we're going to play um, Adams. He goes to his campaign sheet and it says, okay, set the map up this way. Here's the story. Here's how you're playing this out. And it's to kind of progress the story. And uh, and you cannot continue from that convergence until you actually win the game. Yes. I just think, I think that's really cool. I just think that's such a cool idea it, to basically enforce a kind of story and a kind of track with the campaign to encourage you to play in a more narrative way. And, and I think that that's, I mean, some diehard war gamers might not like the idea, but I kind of want to shove some RPG elements into my, <laughs> yeah. into my war game. I kind of do. Like I love that. I love naming characters. I love giving them stories uh, maybe from a, a painting mishap that I had where I messed up the eye of one of the ogres. So he's like Kagluk crazy eye or something. I don't know. I just love the idea of adding that extra flavor and that extra wrinkle and nuance to a war game. And the campaign system for Warcry, I feel like does it best than any campaign system for war games I've played yet. Yeah. And so I'm like, actually looking at the convergence that I'll be playing this first convergence. It, it, like I said, gives you the exact map. It gives you the victory condition that you're going to need. It tells you everything has some flavor text off to the side. Mm-hmm. So you can like read it to your opponent. Say, here's what's going on here. And then you and I just kind of made a friendly decision. What we're going to do is we're going to roll off, see who rolls higher. And that's the convergence game we're going to play. Mm-hmm. The other person is going to pick one of our different war bands, one that's not participating in a campaign to play it. To throw an extra wrinkle in there. Because after you play, you know, we were only two battles into the campaign, but we've played against each other with these two war bands four or five times now. So we're getting very pretty familiar with them at this point. And the first convergence to throw in a different war band to kind of shake it up a little bit more, I think is a is a cool idea. To not only get thrown into a set scenario for you, but also have new enemies that you're not used to fighting. Mm-hmm. So that's just a little house rule that uh 
I'm, I'm kind of proud of. So. <laughs> I like it. And like I said, let's say that we play your game and you lose. Well, we got to keep playing until you eventually win. Mm-hmm. And it, then at certain points in the campaign, as you continue, you're going to at one point, you're going to be able to get like an artifact of power. Uh, which is going to allow you to a a role. And this is, again, special for each, whichever campaign you're doing, that gives you a a special ability. And then later on down the campaign, after game eight, uh, you're going to get to roll off and get a command trait, which is something that you're going to give to your leader, which adds a really whole new, brand new ability that your leader didn't have before that you can now use the rest of the campaign. So it's like they're leveling up somewhat. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's usually a very good ability too. Uh, yeah, because I'm actually looking over mine right now. And I was like, "Oh, just just add five wounds to this." So he, had, you know, you can oh, increase his strength. Yeah, uh, add add damage. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, unless you know how to play the game, it doesn't make much sense. But I'm like, I'm I'm salivating over some of these things <laughs> that I, that I can't wait to get a hold of. And it goes for twelve games. And after the uh, the final game, then there's like a, a goal at the end that you've achieved, and uh, then you can just kind of pick up another campaign and start again. Now, the only thing is, I've seen so far, it looks like there's maybe only one campaign per faction. There so are far. one. There's one specific campaign for a faction. But then, like I said, we've got so many war bands. The next time we play, I'd probably want to pick up another war yeah, band exactly. and play a campaign with it. Yep. And or what's cool is, like you said, uh, the Lumineth, the the war band that you're playing playing doesn't have other models out yet so who knows next time it comes around you'll have new models say now i want to play the campaign again again with the with these new models something different and more than likely if this game is successful which i think it is i hope it is uh they'll probably just release some additional campus shoot they can just throw them online right yeah and provide them as a free download or something like that yeah And, and i i would encourage if you're playing Warcry, definitely try a campaign I feel like personally, this is the, my favorite way to play the game thus far because it's so, I mean, it's so easy. It's still the same as just picking it up and playing it with someone one night. You just do it as part of a campaign and that's it. And our games probably last 30 to 45 minutes. 30 to 45 They're minutes. short. So easy. And again, what I love about this at the very beginning of the game is you've got these decks of cards that will determine what the terrain looks like, what the victory condition is. How units will be deployed because you break up your units into three different, uh, break up your warband into three different units, and it shows how they come on the table and what round they may come in. And lastly, there's always a twist, something that's going to change the battlefield just a little bit. All that's random every single game. Mm-hmm. So it makes every game unique. And we're using that while we're playing the campaign. The only time it's fixed is when we get to those convergent points. Right. So that is Warcry, uh, a, a game that we're still playing a year later. We've played it way more than Age of Sigmar, the full game. Uh, but just because it's, it's, it's just easy, easy. to get to it's the table. It's just so easy. Yeah. And I mean, I love playing Age of Sigmar. I do believe Age of Sigmar is a, is a, is a more satisfactory experience to play but i mean you don't go to a steakhouse every night to eat so you're saying this is the mcdonald's of miniature games no i was trying to think of it because (laughs) that implies low quality it's the cookout of miniature games how about that that's the southeastern thing it's easy it's fast and it's delicious (laughs) so yeah cookout's a delicious southeastern restaurant that's around here uh maybe Five Guys. Uh, I'm trying to think of something more. A Whataburger or, it's, you know, yeah, one of those I guess, things I guess people like, love it. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a local favorite, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> In-N-Out, Whataburger, Cookout, whatever like that. So there you go. Warcry, uh, we're still really enjoying it. I think this is still a good step to get into miniature gaming. Because, uh, mm. again, oh, yeah. the biggest war band I've seen so far is the one Adam's currently playing. Eight models. That's it. 
NGW even sells warbands. Oh, that's right. They say we haven't bought any of those, but they we sell a boxes of yep. war. Fifty bucks. Yep. You walk out of the store with fifty bucks, and you could buy the core rule, and you could be up and running. Yep, for sure. Speaking of RPGs, the next segment we're going to be doing is Joel's going to be coming back to talk about our experience playing an RPG in the Age of Sigmar universe. So, would you like to hang around and talk about that too? I absolutely would. Nice. So to wrap up this Games Workshop-centric episode, in the first segment, we talked about 40K 9th Edition with Joel Eddy. In the second segment, we talked about Campaigns and Warcry with my son Adam. And in this segment, I'm going to be talking about the Age of Sigmar RPG that just came out or is coming out from Cubicle 7. And I decided to have both of them back in for this segment because we've gotten together and played through a session of this RPG. So, uh, Joel and Adam, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Great to be back again. All right, so here we go. Let's talk about this. So it was announced last year that Cubicle 7 was going to be coming out with an RPG based in the Age of Sigmar universe. Now, Cubicle 7 before that re-released the Warhammer Fantasy RPG. And for those who may not be sure what the difference is, would one of you lore people, because you love lore, like to explain what's the difference between Warhammer Fantasy and Age of Sigmar? And y'all can tag team this if you want to. <laughs> I'll start. Okay. So the difference between Warhammer Fantasy and Age of Sigmar is they actually both sort of exist in the same universe, but the world that was the Warhammer Fantasy world or the old world has been destroyed thanks to Archeon. And then uh, millions and thousands and trillions of years later, or however long, the magic sort of settled and sort of created these uh, eight mortal realms. And so that is kind of like the new long distant remnants of the old world have settled into these sort of plain type of realms. Think of like Magic the Gathering type of thing or almost like the, um, uh, the Thor and Odin type of mythology, which you've got these different sort of realms of existence. And then so that is filled with creatures and people, not unlike who populated the original old world. GW has put a lot of effort into creating a setting that is simultaneously completely different from the old one and yet the exact same. Mm -hmm. They've essentially created a world where they can reuse some of the same characters and set pieces and stories, but yet have totally different ones as well. And that's that's kind of where Age of Sigmar sits. It's totally different. All the geography is different. Uh, much of the the people that are walking around it are different. But they still left outs for them to bring back old characters or bring back old storylines even. It just kind of sits in a, a sort of liminal state between brand new and still the same. Is Felix and Gotrick back? One of the two is. Okay. Gotrick is back. <laughs> Gotrick actually, he made it all the way through. So at the end of the old world exploding, he got sucked into uh, like the warp, if you're familiar with 40K, but he got sucked into the realm of chaos. And he's been spending his uh, millennia basically slaughtering the demons of chaos. And then he has recently sort of just uh, popped out and uh and he's roaming around i forget which realm he's in i think he might have moved realms now because there's been a couple of stories following him 
he's actually been looking for Felix. Um, there's some speculation that Felix might be a Stormcast Eternal or something like that, but that's just all kind of, you know, little hoodwinks and, uh, you know, little nuggets kind of left for the fans kind of thing. But he, he actually has been fighting for about a thousand years or whatever <laughs> and then made it out. And now he's here in the new, in the new realms. They're keeping Felix in their pocket. They, they want to, <laughs> they want to be able to hit you with that one when you least expect it. So Age of Sigmar is a fantasy-based world. Uh, there is magic. I guess you would call it high fantasy. Very high fantasy. Yeah, because uh, there's a lot of magic. There's a, there's, is it more magical than what a Warhammer fantasy was, by any chance? I wouldn't say more. Magic is more present. Okay. It's more of a, a thing that regular people have to deal with, but it's no less or no more developed than it was in fantasy, I would say. Now, if you want to get into the game, obviously one of the first things you're going to have to do is sit down and create a character. And like with most characters in RPGs, you're going to uh, pick a race and that's going to determine some attributes that you have. And then uh, there's going to way that you're going to uh, set up what your skills are and your attributes. And what's what's cool about this in the character creation, if you've ever played D&D, there's a bunch of different basic traits and I just played last night, and they're, and they're all even constitution, wisdom, intelligence, charisma, etc. And this is only three. Go ahead. Dexterity. Dexterity. That was the only one you missed. <laughs> In this one, there's only three. Body, mind, and soul. And all your skills will be based on one of those three, right? Now, as we get to the character creation, Joel, you said you kind of want to really point out the fact that these characters you're created are a little bit more powerful than what you may be have expected in, in typical RPG fantasy settings. Yeah, that's right. So if you think about Warhammer Fantasy, it's very much you are a little peon and you can easily be crushed and killed uh, in that universe. Um, but in this universe, the, or not, not just this universe, but this particular game, the kind of the default option is a little bit something more akin to a superhero. So you you're, you compare yourself maybe to uh, Captain America or Spider Man or something like that. So these beings that you can embody are, of course, you know all the different races and everything that you're, if you play the Age of Sigmar miniature game, you're familiar with. You know, there's like Ideneth Deepkin, which are these you know undersea elves that live for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they have special powers. You can play as a Stormcast Eternal, which is this basically kind of immortal being that's made up of lightning, you know, and you can play a tree people, which is like a Sylvaneth and, you know, it's these living, breathing, you know, giant trees that walk around. So you can play all of that stuff. Now you can actually, if you want to play as sort of a regular person, a regular dwarf, a regular elf, you can do that. There are rules in the core book to do that. Uh, but kind of like the default mode is you're pretty heroic. By contrast, in Warhammer Fantasy, you have such classes as Boatswain <laughs> and Ratcatcher. <laughs> so that's that's the kind of gulf between the the story experience between the two. Right. And I think you want to like let that if you're the GM and, and the player, you want to kind of let that inform what's gonna happen, you know, during your adventure and whatnot. Because if you're a you know, if you're a Stormcast Eternal, you're not going to be too worried about like a couple of Skaven that show up to bother the local farmer, 
probably, you know. <laughs> but if you're in a Wars of Warhammer fantasy type of adventure, you might have that. You might have some scheming between houses in the northern reaches of the Empire or something, you know, something like that. Whereas here, it's like, oh, there's this ancient artifact from the Age of Myth, and if somebody uses it, it'll blow a hole through the sun, and you know, <laughs> whatever, and that kind of stuff. I'm exaggerating a little bit on that last one. It's not quite. It's not quite that. It's not like Star Wars that? level, but it's you know, it's up there. It's not that much exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's pretty close. So there you go. So you're not just playing a, a a simple Joe, just a regular peasant or whatever, like you said in in this world. So you can. That was one of the things that I wanted to play. Is is I want to play a peon in this world because like you have no business really doing anything you you got you better be keeping your head down <laughs> because it's just the, the power level of everything going on so i really actually really do want to play that and i was very happy to see that they didn't include that but we haven't you know tried that yet. it's almost a little more interesting to play a character like that in age of sigmar versus fantasy right because i mean you're standing in a world where oh you know that mountain blew up a few days ago how am i going to deal with that <laughs> on my farm right <laughs> Whereas Warhammer Fantasy can start to feel a little like, you know, historical Europe war role playing. Right. Yeah. You know. Um, so, but, and just for just for reference, when we played our game, uh, Joel was the, the GM for our game. And uh, Adam and I came in playing with pre-constructed characters. We wanted to just kind of get into the game and get up and running. But if you want to sit down and create a character, obviously the rules are, have all the information that you need. And if you ever want to reference the rules, these are available on PDF right now, so you can go buy them. But the physical book's not going to come out until later this year. But it is out there. If you want to check into it, you get the, uh, if you order the book, actually, I believe you get the, the PDF for free. That's right. When you create a character, uh, like I said, you got those three basic stats, mind, body, soul, and they all begin at one. You're going to choose a species, and then you have 35 XP that you can use to spend on increasing your attributes or gaining skills or learning talent. So that's where you're going to now go through the book, and you're going to look at uh, what skills you might you might want to enhance and what talents that you might want to take. And and you've got to decide on what your uh, archetype's going to be and Boy, the archetype, you, know, so you mentioned like, was it rat catcher or something like that? That yeah. is way different than the types of archetypes in this in this game. Like, for example, I was an Excelsior war priest. It's a bit of a different connotation there, huh? <laughs> From the boat swing. Yeah, so there are like 23 archetypes uh, in total, and they all have their own unique ability, strengths, and weaknesses, which is always important, I think, when having a character. You need to know what your weaknesses are. So you're going to spend the, uh, not going to get too heavy in what happens there, but you're going to go through and you're going to spend that 35 XP however you want to to set up uh, your character. And then you're going to start filling out your character sheet. And Adam, you had said that you felt this character sheet was one of the better ones you had seen recently. I'm something of an expert on character sheets. Okay. Uh, I've seen many of them in my, in my lifetime. This is one of the best character sheets I've ever seen. It, it's very... When you take your college course on academic writing and they teach you about proper formatting and all that. It adheres to those rules very well. And it, it, it has a very clear layout. I, I was never lost in playing the game. I could always find exactly what I needed to just by glancing at the page. And I think that goes a long way in just quality of life for the player and having a good character sheet to go off of. Yeah, and all the skills that you have, and there's a there's a, a whole list of them on the sheet. And again, they're all going to be based somewhat on those original three 
um, attributes, the body, mind, or soul. So for example, the GM may say, hey, you need to make an intimidation skill uh, with your base being based on your, uh, like your mind. So you look at the value of your mind and that you're going to pick up that number of dice. And what you can do is you can train in specific skills and you can train up to three levels. And for every level that you add, you get to add one extra die to that roll. So if somebody's really good at intimidation, they may be able to add anywhere from one to three extra dice for your roll. But then the skill also has focus. And this is what I thought was cool, too. So we hadn't mentioned it yet, but this is a D6 base system. And typically on just your average checks, you're going to roll a pool of D6s. And anything that is four, five or six will be a success. It depends. Like, so it, it depends on the, the difficulty of the test. So on your average test, you will, like like you said, let's say you're doing an intimidation test. You, you get your uh, mind of four and your intimidation of one, so you take the five dice. If it's an average test, you just need four, five, or six. If it's a difficult test, maybe you need two sixes. You know, or you can make it really hard or really easy. And we'll get into kind of what that, that means in a second, but you can attribute a focus to it, which will decrease the value that you need for that success. I was going to say on one dice. So if you have a focus, you can you can bump up. You can basically get a plus one on one of your dice. Yeah, and then you can have up to three focus right. per skill. So let's say if you were to do that check and you have all three focus, you could have plus three to add to any set of dice. Right, and you can you can divide those up. I mean, if you're like, oh, I got this plus three, and I have this one die that was really low, but everything was a success, you can add all three to the other die or spread them out, or add two to one and one to the other, and that kind of stuff. So the skills are a little bit more, if you're used to D&D, then there's, there's maybe a little bit more to them here, because typically with D&D, you're just going to roll a D20, and you're going to add whatever your, your skill bonus is for that thing, and that's it. And then the GM will tell you whether you're successful or not. And in this case here, you know exactly when you roll, probably how many successes you need. Do I need one success? Do I need multiple successes? And what value do I need to make that success? And that's actually one thing I liked about this system is you kind of knew what you were going for before you rolled the dice. Yeah. And it adds that wrinkle of being able to see the benchmark where you need to and then adjust accordingly. It kind of makes you think more about what you want to do rather than just uh, a D20 system where you're just trying to shove as many numbers into the modifier as possible. Maybe you don't necessarily want to do that because there are the concept of resources. Like you mentioned, the focus point. Do you want to use that to boost yourself now or later? Is this an important check? Can you think you can do it realistically? There's actually a lot more of a, a strategy and a thought process and to your average die roll in this game than in most D20 systems, in my opinion. Yeah, so Joel, as the GM, as we were playing along, and this is, this is outside of combat, why don't you explain, like, maybe if we had to make some sort of check and you were determining what we needed for that check, because uh, as you said earlier, it may not just be one success you're looking for. It may be multiple successes, and there's nomenclature in the book on how that's presented to the player on what you need to roll and how many successes you need for that roll. Right. So there's actually a, a nice little chart in the book that if you want to get really fine tooth comb with it, you can. But it's basically your average test. You need one success or one four plus on whatever, you know, the amount of dice they roll. But as you kind of raise and lower the difficulty, you'll raise or lower the target number, which is, you know, could be two, three, four, five, six. And then... You know, maybe they needed multiple successes or you could do something like an extended test 
And a lot of times, like, maybe you're trying to, like, pick a lock. And maybe you need, I don't know, within three rounds of checking, like, three sixes. But they would get three rolls for that. And maybe there is some guards or something coming around the corner. So you've got kind of, like, three turns to do it in. So you could do something like that. Or maybe in between your sessions, you know, if somebody's trying to craft some item, like one of their little side quests might have been to collect some materials, you know, and then, and then like, like the week between sessions, you know, the, the in-game week, you can try to do something like that where he's like, well, you need a couple of successes. So I'll, I'll tell you what, you get a chance to do two rolls during that sort of your time off, your downtime. And so you roll that maybe after your session. See, so like, okay, you got one success out of that. So next time... Uh, you know, the adventure is going to sweep you away from your little lab or whatever you're in. But next time we come back and now you only need two more successes. So you can really just kind of play around, uh, like Adam was saying there, and really kind of target it to be a little bit more specific, I think, and a little bit more indicative of whatever the task at hand might be. And as you're going through all that, I'm actually looking at some uh, PDF or at, I'm actually looking at some sheets I printed off from the GM screen, which is also available for pre-order, but you can get the PDF version of it. And I will say, if you're going to be getting into this game, I really recommend this screen because there's a lot of information on the back of this screen that helps you with the different actions that are available to you as a GM. It'll kind of tell you what kind of difficulties you're looking for. But there is a really nice table called Difficulty by Dice Pool. Yep which has across the top anywhere from 1d6 to 10d6. And on the side, it shows the difficulty uh, for like needing three or higher in one success all the way to needing six or higher in four successes. And they're color-coded as to, based on the number of dice that you're rolling, whether it's easy, whether it's hard, whether it's average, it's just a really nice visible table of like, okay, I see what the GM just asked me to do and wow, this is going to be a tough role for me. Yeah, you can kind of tailor it to something like where if it's you're like trying to smash this ancient wall and you need a storm cast to do it, and they're going to roll this number of dice based on their pool. You can say, well, I want to make it really hard for the storm cast and impossible for, you know, the waif or whatever. Then, you know, you can quickly reference that and say, okay, you need to get this many successes of this target. And it makes it real easy to look up. I'm the kind of player where... I love seeing a, a spreadsheet with a gradient of colored cells in it. <laughs> That's nice. When I when I flipped to that page in the in the little printout here, I was like, "Yeah, this is going to be a good system." <laughs> so yeah, if you're going to be getting into this, I I do recommend the GM screen. It is is really really nice. So that's kind of how checks work as you're playing through the game. Obviously, you're doing a lot of role playing through all this, and all that's kind of the, the general fare. You'll be talking to people, you'll be asked to make tests, etc. But at some point in time, you're probably going to have to be doing some fighting. And if you're used to a, a D20 based system, this one is going to feel very different than that. Uh, because once you go into fighting, typically in a D20 based system like DD, I think even with Pathfinder, when the GM says roll for initiative, you know it's getting ready to go down. In this game, you don't roll for initiative. You can. I mean, there's there's an optional rule to do that, but you, the the default rule is you just work down in initiative order. Because and then everybody has their own initiative that they're starting with based on the value on their character sheet. Yeah, exactly. We talked about Shadowrun, right? Did we go over D six systems when we talked about Shadowrun? Yeah, years ago when we talked about it, we did go over D sixes. Yeah, it's by and large similar to Shadowrun. 
Although I feel like this is a little more concise, a little easier to grasp for someone who is coming from a D20 system or has otherwise never played a D6 system before. I think this is probably the, one of the easier, more accessible ones to go into. Yeah, because remember they had all the threshold things and everything yeah, like that where Shadowrun. there's only a certain number of dice that you could roll based on something and you had yeah. to meet it through. I don't know. It got Every time I played Shadowrun, I had to relearn the rules. Yeah, you almost had to know computer science to push that around <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, it's very crunchy. Very crunchy. Uh, I thought this one was less crunchy than Shadowrun. I think it's less crunchy than Pathfinder. Really? I, I think so. Now, I know we've, we've had different opinions about this because we came away from the table and I was like, oh, that wasn't a very crunchy system at all. And you're like, oh, man, that was so crunchy. <laughs> so for me, I, I it's definitely way way more numbers intensive than D&D is, for sure. Uh, I still think it's a little less than Pathfinder 2nd and 1st edition. But I think this is about middle of the road when it comes to the crunch versus kind of more streamlined, simplified approach. I think it's up right there in the middle. And it's that kind of a sweet spot, I feel like, where you have plenty of opportunity to work the numbers and to strategize around them, but also you're not bogged down by them. And speaking of simplification, so we, we've gotten into combat and, uh, you know, tip, some games you're going to decide, well, you know, what's the range of my weapon? How far can I move and everything? But one thing I like about this, and Joel, maybe you can tell the audience about this, are zones, which I love. Yeah, I this, this probably is my favorite part of the game. And uh, just a quick background for me. Now, I've only ever played D&D and uh, a couple of end of the world games. And I, I think that's it as far as RPGs go. And not really a lot of D&D. But every game that I've ever played of, of these games was all theater of the mind. I never played anything with a grid or anything like that. Um, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the theater of the mind. Now for this one, when I started to read through and also read through some of the encounters that are presented, they have a free kind of download starter encounter. You can get the free uh, starting character uh, PDFs as well. And so we just use those. And so when I was kind of reading those and imagining those in my head, I really got stuck into this concept of zones, which is in the core rulebook. Now you can, if you, I think if you wanted to sort of adapt um, this to more of a grid based movement, uh, and you know, like if you're somebody is, you know, based on their speed, but it's, it's really more open ended than that. And so I went ahead and set up like these little, I don't know, vignettes. And we were able to stream it online. And so I basically said, this is this zone, this is that zone, this is that zone, and these creatures are here. And so you just can move one zone on your turn uh, when you get a turn during an action round in combat. So you can do a move and an action. So you just most characters can move one zone. If they're fast, maybe they can move two. Or if you want to do like a run action, you can do your normal move one zone and move another time and you move into the other zone. Now you can get complex with it and have like, you know, intervening terrain or difficult terrain and that kind of stuff. And I like it because it's not so at the detail microscopic level of precision, which I would never want to play in a role-playing game. That's just my own personal, not that I've ever done it again, caveat, but that never seems that fun to me. I usually just like to sort of imagine everything, but this was neat because I was really able to throw in like a lot of monsters and keep track of them very easily and i think in, in one of the encounters you guys dealt with i wrote it down it was i think it ended up being about 20 different creatures and it was just the three of you and it was super easy to manage it wasn't overwhelming for me i don't think it was overwhelming for you all 
to follow what was going on. And, you, you know, you do want some miniatures and terrain and stuff like that, I think. Or, I mean, you don't need terrain, sorry. But I'm more of a miniature player, so I'm like, you need terrain. But, you know, you could get like a little dry erase board or something and just kind of map stuff out that way. Uh, you know, and use tokens or whatever. But I really like that because to me, it added to like a, the cinematic flair of it. You could really kind of play around with, you know, where stuff was and, and what was going on and get into the kind of the tactics of it and all that kind of thing. And I just thought, and, and do again, like that really super heroic kind of battle. Uh, because the characters, again, they're very, oh, I almost said overpowered. <laughs> they're very powerful and they can take out. Uh, I think the number is like you want to get at about a couple of sort of the normal warrior type of NPCs per char- player character, and then maybe like one champion per group. I mean, and so there are a couple of tricks that aren't in the book that are actually I, I sort of picked out of the Soulbound Discord to try to get that right number because that was one thing that I got really nervous about going into this and, and trying to figure out what the power level is going to be because they're supposed to be super heroic. And I, I did some like little test rolls and whatnot of with the warriors. And I'm like, these players are just wiping out, you know, a Zangor, which is a, it's a horrifying being. It's just like demonic bird faced guy. That's really good with a melee weapon. And, you know, I'm thinking of myself or put my imagination back into like Warhammer fantasy type player. And I'm like, well, that would kill the whole party, you know? <laughs> and so that whole like, balancing act of uh, uh, of keeping things in certain areas is really cool because you can kind of control the flow of combat and whatnot. But yeah, the whole zone thing, I just really was like, it just it kind of opened up uh, Pandora's box in, in a sense uh, for me to really kind of set up these different situations that you could really get kind of detailed with, uh, but not get too much in the minutia of like who's exactly where, you know, because you just have like kind of an open area and you move from place to place. As a, shall we say, well-traveled RPG player, (laughs) I adore the zone system. I think it solves a lot of problems that I had with pretty much any RPG system when it came to combat, because in Pathfinder or D&D, attacks are measured in feet, which if you're playing without a grid, which I never did, um, how do you you determine that? You always wind up with these situations where your players are like, am I close enough to cast a spell? Sure. <laughs> Why not? I seemed close enough to me. And it always comes out to something like that. Because I, you know, when I ran most of my Pathfinder and D&D sessions, I was in college, playing in dorm rooms, didn't have a place to put a grid or miniatures or anything like that. So we were all just doing it, you know, off the cuff as it was it was difficult to gauge things like that. The zone system, I feel like, remedies that instantly because now you have kind of a simultaneously amorphous yet distinct range system that you as the GM have the liberty to uh, control in a way that is easy for the players to understand. And it works just as well if you have a grid and miniatures and terrain, the works, or if you have none of that and you're just talking to each other and playing it that way. And I also liked it too because, like you said, with the weapon, it's like, well, I'm a this uh, longbow can reach 150 feet. I'm 150 feet, you know. And it, the way this is done, if you have the zones drawn out, you have short range weapons which are within the same zone you're in, medium range which is to an adjacent zone it can reach, 
or long range, it can jump two zones away. So just that simple thing, it's like I can easily see for myself, will my weapon reach or not without having to ask the GM and them having to think about it. So it just makes the combat quicker. And the combat in this system did flow a lot smoother and a lot quicker than many systems I played. So let's say let's say I've uh, we're in, in in melee range and I've decided you know what I'm going to pick up my warhammer and I'm going to try to strike this person right here. For melee weapons, you use a weapon skill plus the body. For range weapons, it's ballistic. That's right. And then you're going to roll that number of dice. And Joel, why don't you take it from there and walk us through the rest of the combat? Yeah. So you you take that number of dice. And then there's this little chart, and I can't for the life of me remember the name of it, but it's there's three sort of categories. There's melee, ranged, and defense. And you have like a little checkbox. It's not a checkbox, but it looks like a checkbox. And you can be extraordinary, superb, all the way down to poor. And you take, let's say you're doing the example Marty gave with the Warhammer. Let's say you are good, and you are attacking you know, somebody that has a poor defense. Well, because good is two steps uh, higher than poor, so you're going to take that pool of dice that we just built, and then all you need is twos to hit. Or if you're evenly matched, so you have a good melee versus good defense, then you need fours to hit. Or, you know, the reverse. If, if they have higher defense, then you might need fives or sixes to hit. So you just roll that up, and then you get damage equal to the weapons where the damage comes in. So you usually get one or two damage plus the number of successes. So I roll a pool of like five dice, I get two successes out of it, and then I get three damage because it's the one from the weapon and then the two from the successes. And then all of that's just baked in. You know, the defense and the, the everything just uh, alters that target number that you're trying to do in terms of the difficulty. So uh, the the table that you're talking about, Joel, is actually on the um, character sheet also. Right. And it indicates on your character sheet what your level of each one of those things is. Um from poor to extraordinary for both uh, melee ranged and your your actual defense. So that that's nothing you got to remember anything like that. It's very it's easily visually represented on the sheet and has the table beside of it showing uh, how that's going to affect your role based on the comparison of those two numbers. Yeah, if you ever played uh, like 40k, it's basically strength versus toughness <laughs> or the kill team or something like that. You're looking at my strength versus your toughness. And you need a two, three, four, five, or six based on the comparison. And that's where they've also done a good job of taking the miniatures game into the RPG and having the same feel. All the miniatures games are D6 based. Most of the miniatures games are where you're comparing some sort of number of the attack against some sort of number from the defender. And from that, you're going to come up with how much damage is dealt to them. Yeah. And, you know, that's another thing that I really, really loved because when we were having that session, and I had like two or more Zangors in the same zone. Or no, I'm sorry. It wasn't the Zangors. It was the Screamers, those things that fly around and then they like bite you. So if you have two or more, then their ability will like change. And it's almost like little war scrolls or data sheets that they have for each of the different um, uh, monsters and NPC characters. So you look at the skills and they have the same type of thing that the players have. So they can move and do an action. So you have like a couple of different actions that you can choose. So as the GM, I'm like playing this. I'm like, okay, so if I move these guys in the same uh, zone, then when I roll, they'll get an extra attack or they will sort of automatically uh, decrease the difficulty. So the target number, whatever it ends up being, will be minus one because there's they're multiple in a zone. Or like when I was navigating the, the Zang or Shaman, they have some attacks and they can attack attach with, the, with this disc that they fly around on. 
And so based on the situation, you get to make like these real sort of very skirmishy, miniature types of choices in combat. And to me, this that made it even that much more engrossing to say to have like a a selection of skills and abilities and stuff or spells even to pick from and little kind of miniature-esque combos that you could sort of pull out of the different characters. You mentioned the whole actions and combat thing. There are, this is interesting too. Typically in D&D, it's going to be move, attack, move, attack, move, attack. Here you can move, but the actions and combat, they have a whole list here. Again, on this wonderful GM screen, of so many different things. The most basic ones attack, but then there's a charge and called shot. You can say, I'm going to defend where it's basically make you a tank, dodge, flee, grapple, etc. There's a whole list here. And I think that is, I think that is really cool. It's more than just move and attack. It's move in any of these actions uh, in combat, which I think just makes the combat more, I don't know, it's more interesting to me as opposed to just the typical, I'm going to swing a weapon this time around. Right. They even have this uh, option here. I love this. I love it when an RPG will say this. One of the actions you can take in combat, and I quote, is improvise. (laughs) Tell your GM what you want to do, and they will tell you if it's possible. (laughs) Brilliant. It's so simple and so elegant, and it adds just that infinitely possible option of just saying, can I throw the joy for across the chasm? (laughs) (laughs) asking the GM if that's possible. It's it's brilliant. And then what's cool is the GM will, will think in his mind, well, how hard should that be? And he can use that table, which we mentioned before, and he can come up with some sort of requirements, a difficulty number for you to try to match. And then you can go from there. Now, you guys talked about how you love zones. Let me tell you the thing that I love in this system. As part of the combat, you also have this resource that every character has called metal. M-E-T-T-L-E. And for example, my character had two metal. And you can spin these during your turn to do things. You can spend one to take an extra action, which I found very useful. You can spend one to use talents or miracles or spend multiple. So some of those skills that you may have had at the beginning, like casting a spells, some of them have a cost to them, and that cost is going to be metal. You can spend a metal to double your training, which is going to be basically double the dice that you have from the training that you have for a particular skill. And the last thing is you could double your focus, which is double the uh, the bonus you get from focus. That was the thing we talked about earlier, where you can add values to dice so you can use a metal to make sure you try to succeed. And at the end of every, at the beginning of every round, you always get one metal back. So you always have at least one to spend every round. And that's the one thing I loved about this system was that resource. That's what threw me off when, when I was running my little tests. Uh, and I said, I was very nervous about trying to figure out the right amount of creatures and stuff to throw at you guys. Cause I, I, I had read the rules, you know, like a month ago and then you come back and then we're getting prepared and I'm like, oh, you get one medal every turn? I'm like, how is that balanced? Because they get to double their training or take an extra action or, you know, take extra focus. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. So I went to this Discord channel, which I mentioned. I'm like, what is the deal with this? Because I'm now like realizing what's going on. And they said, throw more stuff at them. I'm like, okay. And then and I, I just got it. And I was like, yeah, these guys are superheroes. Like they should be able to do this stuff. And then after we played... Through a couple rounds of combat, I think I felt like I was able to get used to it. And I got the sense that you guys were able to get used to it. And it became like a really fun, interesting resource that you guys could manipulate 
and and play around with. Well, maybe you guys can tell me. I mean, that was my impression. Yeah, absolutely. I I grew to really love the metal system. When I play D&D or Pathfinder, and the experience is much the same with a lot of people, if you have a combat encounter that drags on, inevitably what happens is you take the same action over and over and over. You're going to attack with your best weapon or try and hit with your best spell. Maybe you have to manage the amount of spells. But in this system, I found myself doing something different almost every single turn because the metal added an extra wrinkle where I could just do the same thing every turn or I could could use the metal to do something different and maybe that can have, maybe I can boost my stats for this real quick or see if this attack works. It added an extra resource that made combat much more, uh, made the combat have much more variety. And I felt like that was really interesting and really engaging. You know, as a board gamer, I'm used to having some sort of resources to play with and use and everything. And that's exactly how I felt with this. And you're right, Adam. It made me think every single turn, what was I going to do? So, for example, I had a medal of two. One of my spells to use cost two. So then I had to think, well, if, if I use this spell this turn, I can't use it next turn. Do I want to save it for next turn? So then I'm trying to manage... When do I want to cast that spell? Because it's almost got like a cooldown at that point because it'll take two turns for re- for me to recharge my metal to be able to use it again. It just made me think so differently than typical D20-based system because now I have all these options available to me that this one little simple metal resource gave to me. So then that's kind of basically how combat works. You're, you're going back and forth. The GM's throwing things at you. You're using your metal. You're using your combat. You can take damage. Uh, you have a, Each of you have a toughness that you have to deal with. There's a concept of taking wounds. You could take deadly wounds. Uh, you can die. Uh, you could potentially die. But it's interesting, uh, Joel, because if you play it as a Stormcast Eternal, when you die, it's different than when other races die. Yeah, you know, because they, like I said, they are sort of immortal. Not 100%, but pretty close. And they, in the lore, they have this concept of being reforged. So it's kind of like at the last second, right at the very, very last second before they die, uh, Sigmar will snatch them up and then and they'll be turn into like a bolt of lightning and shoot towards Azir or the heavens or whatever. And then their soul, that's what their soul is, that lightning bolt. And that soul will go back to the forging chambers or something of Azir. And then there will be some time before they are reforged. We could go into the lore of that. It's very interesting what happens because they, they kind of lose some of the memories of what happened to them. And they really don't because they they initially were like a mortal or a human being, and they got snatched up in a similar way by Sigmar because they were using really in a lot of ways so much of their faith to fight back against you know evil forces, and and they were about to die. This is usually usually what happens, and then Sigmar kind of sees that and notices that, and then pulls them up at the last second, and then turns them into a Stormcast Eternal, which is kind of a blessing and a curse itself because. They don't really have a great memory of their former life. They have very like vague impressions and there's lots of pain because they, you know, they were usually like on the verge of death. And then as they sort of get reforged and reforged again, uh, it kind of affects everybody differently. Some of them sort of lose their, their emotional qualities and stuff. You know, some of the stuff that, (laughs) that we enjoy in life, the pleasure goes away and also the pain goes away. It's very, 
it's very interesting. But yeah, so they're they're a little bit of a different animal. There's one thing I really like about this too is that it encourages you to work as a as a party. So we haven't talked about this one other resource, and that's called Soulfire. And uh, this is awarded to you by the GM. And basically, it's a party-based resource uh, that you can use during the game for such as you can spend soul fire to uh, give your, increase the number of successes that you have or spend soul fire to re-roll dice, etc. But it's got to be a group decision. Mm-hmm. It's like, look, okay, we have this soul fire that, that we have. Is it okay if I use it in this combat? So it makes you even want to work together even more. Now, you can go off on your own. And you could say, hey, I'm going to spend it without asking your permission. And what that happens is, is that gives you yet something else the GM is going to track. And that's called Doom. Right. Yeah. You know, the whole Soul Fire thing is very interesting because this is one of the areas that I was not going into this really a big fan of. Because the the concept behind Soul Fire in sort of the lore of, of the rulebook is that the players have been sort of brought together in the service of some deity and then they have this soul fire thing that they can expend and i was like i don't want to be forced into this mission for a god all the time every time i play this one role-playing game like i would like to have you know more organic adventures but the way that the rulebook actually presents this uh with some of the caveats and options it gives is you can kind of turn soul fire into sort of a generic morale for the whole group. And that that's really what it kind of ends up being. And so it's like it's like super metal. You know, we talk about metal, you get extra actions, extra uh, focus and all this stuff. You know, this is just like when I roll a die, everything's a success. And you usually have one or two soul fire for like the whole session. And getting soul fire back is not an easy thing. And just to maybe digress just quickly, is this is one of the things they kept from Warhammer Fantasy that I really like is the idea of like, uh, a player goal and then also a party goal. So you're not really awarding like, you know, chunks of experience. It's like, okay, when you did your thing, if you did it, you know, if you role played and did it thematically and, and you were successful and it kind of met your character's goal or your party's goal, then we're going to award you with these little goodies. And soul fire is really supposed to happen when the party itself achieves like a really extraordinary goal. And so now you're, you're, not just your morale, but really the morale of the mortal realms is lifted up by your actions. So now you have this sort of innate good luck or something that's burned into you. I've mentioned in the past, any mechanic that rewards role-playing, I'm all about. I I love that. I love having an incentive to role-play well, and I love Soulfire even more because it's party-based, right. and we as GMs can finally rein in all those chaotic neutral players <laughs> who are like, well, I don't care what happens to the party. You know, it, it's something that I think is good for the party as a whole and the role-playing experience as a whole is that now you have a reason to work together and to cooperate and to think, hey, should we do this right now? And as a side note, also, you get soul fire as a party. So you have to, as a party, commit to, all right, we're going to go off the beaten path because we heard there was some pretty bad stuff going down in this town over here and we got to save these people. It's going to take some time, but if we have a moral obligation, 
that's kind of something you would get rewarded Soulfire for. I just think that's great. I think it's great because it can maybe get all the party members on the same page or alternatively encourage discussion in role playing. I just think it's a great system that creates opportunities for better role playing. And as a GM, if you see that chaotic neutral person, the kind of going off script and stuff and causing issues, like I said, there's this doom that your party can accumulate that makes all of a sudden a test and stuff more difficult for you because you're not working together as a party. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm all about going off script and doing what you want. But if it's to the detriment of your party members, there has to be a punishment. And I love that there's a built-in punishment for it. So that's a really... 30,000 foot level of Age of Sigmar Soulbound, which is the full name. And I'm sure people listening is like, my gosh, y'all, you've been talking for 50 minutes. And and that's just the high level overview. Yes, because there's a lot of other things that could have been mentioned when you get to the minutia of a pose test and all this stuff. I just wanted to kind of explain what this universe is, how the system works, what kind of characters you're going to be playing with. And I think the, the fact that it is a very... To me, tactical game when you get into the combat because of the resources that you have. But then as Joel and Adam brought up, you had this other component, this soul fire, which is like, you know what? We're out of combat. Let's work together. Joel, you mentioned about the common goals. I think that's really cool as a party at the beginning of a campaign that you establish this goal. And as a GM, you can help them towards that if that's what they're searching for. Or you you'll, may hear when you create your character sheet, you're also supposed to have goals for each individual person. And that person may say, hey, while we're in this location, one of my goals is I'm trying to go and achieve this or find this thing. Will y'all go with me? And then all of a sudden you're working together as a party to help this one person, which helps the party overall. I just think it's a great way, like you said, Adam, to role play together. Yeah, uh, the system does it facilitates role playing excellently. And for that, for me, that's a huge, huge selling point of an RPG system is if it can facilitate those role playing moments. Now, I know we haven't dug into it a lot and haven't played a lot of it, Just, but just over, overall, Joel, you haven't played a lot of RPGs, but how do you feel about this system compared to the other ones you've played? You know, I, I love it. I mean, it, it, we only played it the one time, and I found myself wanting to play, like I said, sort of the squishy, normal, everyday person in this world to kind of maybe get swept up in like an adventure that is... It's really, you know, fish out of water kind of story. Like, I, I really have a desire to play that. I think if I were to keep playing this, like, you know, with sort of the super heroic characters, the combat and all that stuff that we've just been gushing over the last 20 minutes or so, like, I could keep coming back to that over and over and over again. But that other part of my brain, the storytelling, the RPG side of it, that's where I have, like, a little bit of a disconnect from like the super heroic side of it. And so I don't know how often I would play it, but if I can kind of, but again, I think I would probably fall in love with it more and more the more I played it because all of the mechanics I love, I love hundred percent across the board. And I think the investment in the characters would, would come after a couple of sessions, you know, and, and, and I've only played on the GM side of it. So, but, you know, rolling up my own character and coming up with a backstory, that'll probably get me, you know, more involved with it. But mechanically, I think this is, my favorite. I mean, like I said, I only played like, you know, three or four other RPGs in my life. As far as mechanics, this is just, to me, it's just blowing me out of the water. All right, Adam, as the person who has said, has played many, many, many hours of RPGs over the years, what's your overall impression, man, compared to the other ones? It's my favorite D6 system I've ever played. 
So for well, I haven't played too many D6 systems. It'd be like Iron Kingdom, Shadow Run. Uh, but I think it's one of the most mechanically tight systems I've played in a long time. Maybe the most mechanically tight system. I mean, uh, I haven't gotten to play a lot of Pathfinder 2, played some D&D 5, and I feel like this one is tighter. I feel it has like a better uh, focus on its design and what it's trying to do mechanically. Um, as far as role playing goes, I mean, I'm a huge Warhammer guy. I love the worlds. So for me, I, I, I always love to play uh, this or Warhammer fantasy because I just love playing in that universe so much. And I would love to especially run a scenario with this system uh, or a campaign, I guess I should say. And like Joel was saying, I think that the potential is greater with a party of rat catchers and boatswains. Um, <laughs> yep. I think that there's a lot of story time potential or even a mixed party could be interesting. Maybe you have a Stormcast Eternal and a Fire Slayer Chieftain, and then you have just John the Miller over here who's gets swept up in this somehow, but maybe he's important and they have to get him to say, I don't know. There's a lot of possibilities in it with that gulf between the average person and the average character you're going to be playing at. I think there's a lot of narrative possibility there that maybe some systems don't have. So I'm really excited for this to come out. I'm really excited to play it more because I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I, I thought I never got tabletop fatigue playing at it, which I feel like a lot of RPGs can get D&D and Pathfinder. If you're at the table for more than three hours, you're yeah. starting to, yes. But uh, th this system, I felt like kept it moving really fast. I felt like it was really engaging. I loved it. I'm going to take a minute. Y'all can, can gush with me too. I'm just going to gush over Cubicle 7 for a minute. <laughs> so I've been a huge fan of Cubicle 7 for years. Uh, years ago when they released Adventures in Middle Earth, uh, which is their uh, D20 or 5E based system for Adventures in Middle Earth, I, I started buying all the books and the art and everything's amazing. I also bought the One Ring just because I love the Lord of the Rings and it had as an incredible uh universe that, to work with and the arts incredible and the books are in, in just amazing i hate they lost that i hate they lost that uh license to be able to do those but the art and everything in this and even though we're only seeing the pdf i cannot wait to get the physical book it's just mind-blowing how good the fluff is written and how good the art is i haven't looked into the pdf too much because i'm saving it for the book because I, I i always feel like it's kind of i gotta have the book i gotta have the physical book to look through and thumb through uh you know pdf's great for rules but when it comes to all the juicy the the fluffy bits and the all the good stuff I gotta have the physical thing in my hands oh yeah it's been killing me flipping through a pdf it's just been absolutely killing me <laughs> and they've already got a lot of stuff coming out, right? I mean, they, they've released uh, some some uh, pre-gen characters, like I said, some scenarios, and the the physical product's not even out yet. Now you can pre-order all this stuff. And Joel, you were you were showing the other day they've got these really nice dice mats right. uh, that you can get uh, with the with the Age of Sigmar Soulbound emblems on them and everything. And they just got, they make high quality stuff. So just know that if you order, if you've never had any Cubicle Seven products, you're going to be very impressed with their quality. Uh, it's very good pages. the The books are bound together very well. So there you go, Age of Sigmar Soulbound. It is currently on pre order. It's supposed to be released Q four. 
There is one thing I'll say about uh, Cubicle 7 is don't hold their feet to the fire when they have a uh, time of release out there, especially with the way things are going right now. But if you're interested in it, you can get the PDF. You can start looking to it. Start playing it now. Like I said, if you pre-order the physical books, all this stuff comes to you for free. It comes through RPG. Uh, dot com, which is where I, I got all my stuff from. So, gentlemen, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm Joel. I'm ready to pick up the story where we left it off from last time and uh, continue journeying uh, in this world here. I, I'm down. I have two vignettes. Little, I packed them away. I have all the pieces all set away, and I'm like, okay, if we ever get back to this, I can just pull this board out with these ruins and these monsters, and pull this other one over here, and we can just jump back into it. Fantastic. Nice. All right, gentlemen. Thanks for your time. Yep. Thanks. No problem. So after hearing about 40k and Warcry and RPGs, maybe you would like to check out some of this stuff. Did you know that MiniatureMarket.com is a games workshop reseller? That's right. All their products can be bought right there on their website and you get a discount of up to 15% on all their products. As soon as a new GW product is announced, you can pre-order it and have it ready to go on day of release. They carry all the models, the paints, the books, everything that you need to get into the games. They carry all your painting supplies and brushes, etc. Everything you need is right there on the website over at miniaturemarket.com I hope everyone enjoyed this very special episode of Rolling Dice and Taking Names. It was fun to get with Joel and Adam and talk about these other types of games that we've been playing that are kind of a away from board games is a different experience. And again, the whole goal was to try to introduce these games coming from a board gamer perspective. If you don't know a lot about miniature gaming or RPGs, hopefully we've teased enough about how these systems work that maybe you actually want to go try them out yourself. Again, some of this stuff may seem intimidating. It's like, I don't know what's going on. The learning curve may be steep, but there are so many people and resources out there to help you get going. If you have a local gaming store near you, more than likely some of them there are are playing these games and they love to teach other people how to play these games and once you get into miniature gaming or rpgs it's one of those types of games that you'll stick with the rest of your life because it's just something you can always keep coming back to it's a it's a solid staple that will always be there for you before we get out of here, I want to share a few things I'm going to be doing this week. First, on July 29th, I'm going to be joining Joel Eddy from Drive Through Review to do a live reaction to the Fantasy Flight Games in-flight report on his YouTube channel. We'll start streaming at 6.30 Central, 7.30 Eastern, and if you're in some other time zone, well, you'll just have to figure that one out on your own. So look for that on his YouTube channel and his Twitch channel. Then Friday, July 31st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm going to be streaming Fiverr Finding from Hobby Games. This is a brand new roll and write game they just came out with. I got to play last year at BGG Con. I got a copy of it here. We're going to be playing live online and you'll be able to download the game board and play along with me. And finally, on Saturday, August 1st at Gen Con Online, I'm going to join Scott Caputo and Luke Laurie, the designers of Whistle Mountain from Bezier Games and learning and playing the game with them. So keep an eye out for that. I'll be posting links on Twitter and Facebook so you can follow along if you would like to. Make sure to come back next episode. Tony will be back and we'll be talking about our typical stuff, you know, moon pies, lawnmowers, etc. But until then, keep rolling dice and taking names.
Thanks for listening, everybody. If you liked, you can follow us on Twitter at Dyson Names, Instagram Dyson Names. Come join our Facebook page. Join our BGG Guild 1589. We now have a Discord channel. You'll find links to those over on our Facebook page and our Guild page. Come by because we're talking about a lot of different things, but it's mainly food. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that Tony's the one that picks the name of the episodes because he does such a good job at it. He's also the one that helps write the stingers at the end. So, yeah, I miss Tony. Portal Games has absolutely nothing to do with Games Workshop. And that's a-okay, because if you've heard all this, like, Marty, I just I just want to play board games. Well, then you need to go look at PortalGamesUS.com, because they have a lot of brand new products coming out soon. You can pre-order Detective Season 1. You can pre-order Barbarians, which is the new expansion for Empires of the North. Roman Banners for Empires of the North, which will be coming out later. The open world campaign expansion for Imperial Settlers, Rise of the Empire, is out right now. So you have a lot of op- options over there. And Nothing of that has to do with 40k or Age of Sigmar. To find out more, go over to portalgamesus.com. <laughs>